Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 221 for November 5th, 2009. JavaScript, the elephant in your browser. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToAssist Express, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure and private and, and important like that. With us right now, the king of security, Mr. Steve Gibson from GRC.com. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leah. Great to be back with you again for our 221st episode of Security Now. Unbelievable. We have a good show this week, too. We got a great show this week. Absolutely. We have a, a, we don't often do guest, uh, uh, guests on the show, but, um, a, a friend of both of ours, John Graham Cumming, who we've mentioned, a number of times, and of course, he was the author, is the author of um, the Geek Atlas, which uh, uh, we've talked about and both like very much. He's going to be on because he uh, did a he gave a presentation to a recent virus conference. Um, the title was "JavaScript Must Die." Hmm. So <laughs> this is uh, right after your own heart, isn't it? <laughs> it believe me. This is this is you know the, yes exactly. I've I've understood you know in broad strokes what the problems are. John is going to tell us in painful detail why fourteen year old JavaScript just really doesn't cut it anymore. And his thesis uh, that we'll discuss in a minute uh, is that there's probably no way to fix it wow well we're yeah. gonna get him on in just a minute we i'm sure there's some security news in the uh, hopper as well we do have a bunch of that and uh i presume uh, uh maybe some uh, errata some updates yeah um, all right well i'll tell you what let me uh, let me uh, we're gonna mention uh, go to assist express here uh, get that uh, uh down get knocked down that 10 pin and then we'll go to uh, our uh, our news stories for the week uh, GoToAssist Express is a really great solution for anybody who is in IT or support. I know a lot of you are. It's one of the reasons probably you listen to the show because uh, you have to support people. You have to support software. <laughs> Goodness knows that is not an easy thing to do on the phone these days. GoToAssist Express is the ideal tool for you. It'll make you a support hero. With GoToAssist Express, it's from the folks at Citrix, so it's got that remote access background, you know. But it's more than just remote access. In fact, if you've been using GoToMyPC for support, you're going to love this because it takes that foundation 
And ads features that support professionals want. The ability to have eight sessions, for instance, at the same time. So you start an install, go to the next one. You know, start a scan, go to the next one. You don't have to wait around on any one install. You can do these attended or unattended. Very easy to start a session. You've got somebody on the phone. They say, your software is not working. No problem. Here's, uh, I'm going to send you a link. You click on that link and I can get into your system and I can take a look at it. We can work on it together. They don't have to have software installed ahead of time. It's very simple for them to use. There's no router configuration. It uses NAT traversal. It's, of course, secure, 128-bit SSL. I mean, it really is the ideal solution. You can find out what operating system they're running, what security software, and, and any other applications that are running in the background. You could copy files from your computer to theirs. So if you've got a fix, you just copy it right over. I mean, I can go on and on, but I want you to try it free. Absolutely free for 30 days. Go to gotoassist.com. Go to assist.com slash security. Go to assist.com slash security. 30 days free. I really believe this is the tool you've been looking for. You may be using some sort of remote access right now to get work done. Trust me, this is better. This is the one you've been looking for. Go to assist.com slash security. I mean, they got to be good. They support security now. We thank them so much for their uh, support. So, Steve, what's been happening in the week since we, uh, we, we talked last? Well, we've got um, a little bit of news. It's been relatively quiet. One thing that I wanted to do, though, which sort of sets us up for today's topic, is we talked about the most recent set of security patches for Firefox um, and also for SeaMonkey, since they use a bunch of, this, of, a bunch of common code. And Fi- Firefox 3 and 3.5 we talked about last week. And I just sort of quickly glossed over those things. But I came back and and looked more closely at what went on. And I thought, you know, it's it's one thing just to say, oh, you know, update Firefox. But it's it's interesting, I think, every so often to just say, okay, wait a minute. Let's just take a look at what it was that happened in this one, just one of a continual procession of of security fixes because it's very educational relative to today's topic of JavaScript. And also you and I were, were not really sparring a little bit, but you were saying, wait a minute, you're still on three. You haven't gone to three, five. Right. So, so there, that sort of folds into this too. So there were, there were um, 10 different things, major things that were fixed. There was a, a form history vulnerability uh, that would allow form history to be stolen. A security researcher, Paul Stone, reported that a user's form history, both from web content as well as the smart location bar, was vulnerable to theft so that a malicious web page could synthesize events such as mouse focus and key presses on behalf of the victim and trick the browser into auto-filling in forms, which it would then send to the server. Mm. So that without your interaction, and that's one of the things that John will be talking about today, is that JavaScript provides no differentiation between things that it does and things the user does. So JavaScript is able to perform on your behalf, which is convenient, but also creates vulnerabilities like this one. Um, the second problem was a crash with recursive web worker calls. Security researcher Orlando Barrera of Security Theory reported that recursive creation 
of JavaScript web workers can be used to create a set of objects whose memory could be freed prior to their use. Okay, so you're creating a bunch of things, then you're freeing their memory before you use them. Well, that's not good because then you've got a memory problem. These conditions often result in a crash, which could potentially be used by an attacker to run arbitrary code on a victim's computer. And so um, this text is coming from the Mozilla site. And so their site said, note, web workers were introduced in Firefox 3.5. So this vulnerability did not affect earlier releases such as Firefox 3. The third problem, a crash in proxy auto configuration rate regular expression, regex parsing. Security researcher Marco C. reported a flaw in the parsing of regular expressions used in proxy auto configuration files. In certain cases, this flaw could be used by an attacker to crash a victim's browser and run arbitrary code on their computer. Since this vulnerability requires the victim to have a, a PAC, a proxy auto configuration file, configured in their environment with specific regular expressions which can trigger the crash, this severity or the, the severity of this issue was determined only to be moderate. And the workaround was to disable JavaScript. Of course. Number what four. Else? <laughs> of course. There's a heap buffer overflow. Remember, we talked about it in the GIF color image map parser. In this case, security research firm iDefense reported a heap-based buffer overflow in Mozilla's GIF image parser. This vulnerability could potentially be used by an attacker to crash a victim's browser and run arbitrary code on their computer. Number five, a Chrome privilege escalation. Um, a Mozilla researcher reported that the XPCOM utility unwrapped doubly wrapped objects before returning them to Chrome callers. Chrome being the not, not like Google's Chrome browser, but internal technology that, that Mozilla also happened to coincidentally call Chrome. This could result in Chrome privileged code calling methods on an object which had previously been created or modified by web content, potentially executing malicious JavaScript code with full Chrome privileges. The workaround from Mozilla, disable JavaScript. <laughs> Number six, a heap buffer overflow in string, in string to number conversion that we've seen a couple times and talked about. In this case, a security researcher, um, Alan Rad Pop of, of Secunia Research reported a heap-based buffer overflow in Mozilla's string to floating point number conversion routines. Using this vulnerability, an attacker could craft some malicious JavaScript code containing a very long string to be then converted to a floating point number by the user's browser, which would result in improper memory allocation and the execution of an arbitrary memory location. This vulnerability could thus be leveraged by the attacker to run arbitrary code on a victim's computer. Mozilla says, workaround, disable JavaScript. Number seven, Cross-origin data theft through document.getSelection. And John will be talking about cross-origin problems in JavaScript. Security researcher Gregory Fleischer reported the text within a selection on a web page can be read by JavaScript in a different domain 
using document.getSelection function. Now, these are supposed to be, the origins of scripting is supposed to be separate, but there's all kinds of problems with that not being done right that creates cross-origin, cross that is sort of like cross-server leakage. This violates the same origin policy. Since this vulnerability requires user interaction to exploit, its severity was determined to be moderate, not severe. Um, three to go. Download file name spoofing with RTL, that's right-to-left override. Mozilla security researchers Jesse Rutterman and Sid Stam reported that when downloading a file containing a right-to-left override character in the file name, the name displayed in the dialog title bar conflicts with the name of the file shown in the dialog body. An attacker could use this vulnerability to obfuscate the name and file extension of a file to be downloaded and opened, potentially causing a user to run an executable file when they expected to open a non-executable file. So that could kind of catch out people who think they're more uh, savvy and professional and know what's going on, like checking the file names, except, whoops, due to the way this is handled, it's possible to obfuscate the actual name of the file that you're downloading. Number nine... We talked about um, the the media libraries being upgraded. It was called an upgrade the media libraries to fix memory safety bugs. Mozilla upgraded several third-party libraries used in media rendering to address multiple memory safety and stability bugs identified by members of the Mozilla community. Some of the bugs discovered could potentially be used by an attacker to crash a victim's browser and execute arbitrary code on their computer. The libogz, libvorbis, and libogplay libraries were all upgraded to address these issues. And then on the Mozilla site, it said, note, audio and video capabilities were added in Firefox 3.5. So prior releases of Firefox, such as 3, were not affected. And finally, crashes with evidence of memory corruption. I remember when we talked about this last week, it's like, well, that seems sort of ambiguous. But specifically, it said that Mozilla developers and community members identified and fixed several stability bugs in the browser engine used in Firefox and other Mozilla-based products. Some of these crashes showed evidence of memory corruption under certain circumstances. And we presume that with enough effort, at least some of these could be exploited to run arbitrary code. Mozilla's workaround disabled javascript so now how much so, of that is a problem with javascript and how much of it is just a workaround that prevents people from accessing these other problems which aren't really javascript problems but can be addressed through there, javascript that's a very good point there th- these are these are typically th- th- these are problems in the browser which javascript is used to get access to right so so javascript is the means to 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 using these mistakes it's the mistakes themselves that are the problem now what john is going to be talking about is is or is different than this but but what, what i wanted to highlight here is that um is that the there are um there are New things that were added to 3.5, which are the sources of new problems. 
So we've, we've talked again, you know, as we often do, the idea that anything new has a problem because it hasn't been proven. It's just you, you, it's so difficult to design code securely that, that anything that you do is there, there's going to be a certain percentage of the code that's going to have a problem. So, although as we've seen, everything old has problems too. It's not like, I mean, it's not, they're just a new set of problems. Um, yes. Well, okay. Yes. Um, I mean, it's not like uh, old code is somehow magically better code. Yeah, I would disagree, Leo. I think older code is better code. Older code has had the, the this kind of stuff pounded out of it. Well, what we well need that's is- the question is, does it get pounded out or does it just get pounded? I mean, <laughs> you can't say XP is safer because it's had many, 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 many patches because we keep finding holes in it. Well, it's because it's they. It's because people. No, no one leaves it alone. It's right. we're, we're we're still. You know, it's not a static operating system. Microsoft keeps messing with it. Ninety eight is is old, but but you know, solid and and isn't prone to being affected. Now, I really do believe older code is better code than the new code. That it you are we're, we're the, the, however it's. It's got to be old code that you leave alone, that right. you don't keep messing with. <laughs> and so, you know, XP continues to be brought forward because Microsoft's supporting it and features that are being added in Vista and Windows 7 are still being backported into XP, which is destabilizing it. True, 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 true. So it is significant, though, relative to Firefox 3 and 3.5. I wanted to mention to people that Mozilla has formally stated they they are not going to be continuing to support Firefox 3, the Firefox 3 series, um, after January of 2010. So only November and December, two more months of support for Firefox 3. Really? That's all? Yes. Wow. That's pretty quick. Yeah, that does strike me as being quick. I wanted to mention to people using the Opera browser that to to check for updates, um, they're now at version 10.01 with um, a bunch of vulnerabilities. I won't go, to the, go to, into them in detail, but there are, there, there's a set of vulnerabilities. They're, they're publicly um, known and available. So if you're an Opera user, you definitely want to make sure you uh, stay current there. And then one bizarre bit of news. Uh, I picked up on this on, on the Discovery Channel news. Their security editor, Eric Bland, on the 28th, post an article that just captured my imagination. Um, the title was Digital Ants Could Soon Be Crawling Through Your Computer's Hard Drive, But Don't Worry, They're There to Help. <laughs> and, and Okay, this is just too fun. Scientists from Wake Forest University and the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory have created an army of digital ants. <laughs> and their superior officers, digital sergeants and sentinels, to search out viruses, worms, and other malware. The new antivirus software could provide better protection while freeing up valuable hardware. Quote, we are using the ants to sense something very basic, like a connection rate, said Aaron Fulp, a professor of computer science at Wake Forest University who helped develop the digital ants. (laughs) Quote, when we collect that evidence, which points us 
Then we collect that evidence, which points us to a particular infection or security threat, said Fulp. Like their biological counterparts, each individual ant is not very bright. A connection rate, CPU utilization, or one of about 60 other technical details is all they can sense. When an ant detects something unusual, it leaves a digital pheromone, a <laughs> tiny digital sense that says something. Oh, this is You're just taking, this is a long, This analogy has gone a little too far. <laughs> a tiny digital sense that says something unusual is going on here and that other ants should check it out. Wow. The digital ants report any suspicious activity to a digital sentinel a program designed to watch over a set of computers in a network. The Sentinel sorts through all the information the ants gather as if it's, and if it's suspicious, passes the information on to a digital sergeant. The sergeant then alerts the human supervisor who can deal with the problem. <laughs> the Sentinels and sergeants reward the ants for finding problems. If an ant doesn't find enough problems, it dies off, although a minimum number are always maintained. If a particular kind of ant finds lots of problems, then more of them are created to monitor that problem. The entire system is modeled off of a normal ant colony and uses swarm intelligence, in quotes, to find and diagnose problems. The beauty of using digital ants instead of a traditional antivirus program is their flexibility. Traditional antivirus software usually scans constantly or on a time-set schedule. Constantly scanning for threats is effective, but uses a lot of computer resources, resources that could be better spent doing something else. Scanning at certain times, usually at night, optimizes computer usage, but leaves it, but it leaves a computer more vulnerable in the in, in the interim since the number of ants rises and falls with the number of problems being detected it can free up computer hardware to perform calculations when an attack isn't happening if an attack is happening more ants can quickly be created to help deal with it so there you go leo Digital We're have ants. ants crawling around in our computers. <laughs> well, it's funny because John Graham Cumming calls uh, JavaScript the elephant in your browser. So this is really, <laughs> it's really kind of a, you know, a, a menagerie of problems here. And I have to say, all of this starts making my PDP-8 computers look, <laughs> look better and better. Pretty good. Hey, if you never get on the internet, you'll never have a problem. That is that is the case. Well, maybe never, but y yes, you'll have indeed. fewer problems. Yes, hey, I do want to talk briefly before we get on to any errata and uh, and uh, anything hey. else. I know John's waiting in the wings. We're going to get to him in just a second. But I've got to mention our friends at Astaro because uh, every every month they like us to talk and remind you about the Astaro Security Gateway. We know you love the Astaro Security Gateway. They they were our first advertiser, not just on this show, but I believe, Steve, they were our first advertiser on the entire network. I think they were. Yeah. yeah. Long time we've been with them. Uh, Astaro Security Gateway is the ultimate UTM, Unified Threat Management Box, for your small or medium business. Superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers. You get complete VPN capabilities. And when I say complete, I mean complete. We're talking SSL VPN through uh, the standard remote access protocols like IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling with SSL, 
I mean, you, you just got to love that. You get uh, complete intrusion protection, content filtering, several kinds, three different antiviruses, two for email, one for the web. Of course, you get the best of class industrial strength firewall, and it's all in one easy-to-use, high-performance appliance that grows with your business. You can even use their active-active clustering to go up to 10 security gateways without the need for additional load balancing. So as you grow, your Astaro will grow with you. Don't forget the Astaro Command Center. Free for users of the Astaro Security Gateway. Let's network administrators manage and control multiple gateways from a single dashboard. It's very cool. Uh, I could just go on and on, but you know what? The best thing to do is call Astaro and get a demo unit in your place of business. You can do that right now, free, 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276 or visit them online outside the U.S. at www.astaro.com. And non-commercial users, you should take a look at the Astaro V7. You can download there or get it from VMware. They have a great VMware appliance. lets you play with Astaro for free. Um, the demo unit, though, for business, that's the way to go. Where do you see this box? I mean, this thing is, this is industrial strength. 877, the number four, Astaro. Protect yourself, protect your business with the Astaro Security Gateway. And we thank them so much for their support of security now. What else we got before we, should I get John on? Or do you want to cover some errata first? I, I, I'm not going to hold him up for long. I have a brief errata and a short little spin right story. Okie dokie. My errata is titled... I hate Adobe. <laughs> That's not an errata. That's a factor. Okay, get this, Leo. I, I, I haven't had it happen a second time because I haven't used another machine. But Adobe's Flash updater mm-hmm. with no apparent ability for me to stop it. Oh, boy. Installed a demo of Natural Reader. Oh, no, that's not right. Now, it, there was a checkbox. It also wanted to give me a free McAfee security scan. No. And, I, and I said, no, thank you. But, but then it says it's installed. I'm, I'm watching it update itself, and it says it's installing a demo of Natural Reader. Well, first of all, I own Natural Reader. Oh, great. I use the voice for various things. So, you know, and sure enough, on my desktop now, where I was, I deleted it, but there didn't seem to be a way of uninstalling the demo. It didn't oh, that's leave, unexcusable. Didn't put something in the add remove programs. There was an icon and added in my desktop. When I clicked it, and I, you know, I made sure this was all legit. It popped open a. It was a um, a, a web page that was running Natural Reader from my system, and it's like, okay, wait a minute. I mean, so this is nothing to do with Adobe Flash. And this thing is installing demoware that I couldn't see any way to avoid. I mean, this is really wrong. So, what was I, the well, updater? I, was it your Adobe Reader updater? I mean, what was it? Was it was, was the, the Flash Adobe, updater? It was the Adobe Flash updater. God. And as, and as, so, I I just I wanted to put out a call. I'm sure if if other listeners had this happen to them, drop me a note at grc.com/feedback. Let me know if you saw the same thing. This is just, at this point, it happened to me. I haven't seen anything more about it. But it's like, oh, if Adobe starts doing this, then this is really wrong. Companies do tend to, tend to like to do stuff like that. Uh, just kind of auto-install software. 
I know. Lately, I've just made, you know, like very carefully when I'm installing software, especially free software, watching each yes. window say, oh, no, I don't want the Yahoo toolbar. No, I don't want the... You uncheck, uncheck, uncheck. I but, know. And all the, they're, 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 they're by default, they're checked and you've got to go in and manually say, uh, no, thank you. I don't need another copy of the Google toolbar installed. Golly. Anyway, we did have a nice note um, from Martin. Uh, he said, hello, Steve and Leo. So he addressed to both of us. He says, not a great SpinRide story, but, a, but just a successful one. He said, my primary data print server started acting funny. So I thought a reboot, a, a reboot, a reboot was in order. Once the server turned back on, it sat and sat at the applying computer settings screen. Uh-oh, I need a need for SpinRide. So I ran SpinRide at level two. It found two bad, unrecoverable sectors in, in the course of 30 hours. Following the completion of the scan, a successful reboot was performed and the server works perfectly now. I've since reconfigured a new server for my data and printing. But without SpinRide, I would have had a really tough time pulling my data off the old machine. Like I said... Just a plain SpinRite success story, a successful one. Thank you for a great product. That's not so plain. That's nice. Yeah. That's a good feeling. Let's get to John on right now. And uh, yep. and because and, uh, he's been, poor guy, he's been waiting in the wings for half an hour now. And I, and I want to call him. I think he's in Great Britain, which means it's also getting later and later at night. Yep. So let's, let's, let's get him on. He's the author of The Geek Atlas, which I love. In fact, uh, I will go get my uh, copy of it to hold up. As we talk to John, it's really a must-see. And he has a good website, too, which uh, you can go to. It's, a, uh, let's see, jgc.org. And I'm just uh, calling him up right All now. All right. There he is. Hey, John. Hello. Welcome to the show, John. Now, do you see me all right? I don't see you yet, but if you uh, uh, turn on I your camera, this, <laughs> maybe if I, I press this video it's button, a magic button there, there he is. And Leo, this is an authentic UK accent, as opposed to my crappy <laughs> fake one. Yes, it is. John, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. You actually sound like an evil villain in a you know an American movie trying to be British yeah. when you do it. Yeah, not good. I know. Although somebody in the chat room accuses me of sounding like an evil <laughs> And I do actually have a white Persian cat, um, which I could Uh-oh. bring on to. We're going to call you. not on your lap stroking it. Yeah, we're going to call Ernst, not Ernst right this Stavro minute. Graham Cumming. So, uh, Dr. Evil, welcome to the show. <laughs> this all started with a blog post. We put a little snip URL, or Steve has, together. Snipurl.com slash JavaScript security if people want to read it. Yeah, John. John sent me a a little a little heads up to um, a blog posting of his, uh, probably a subject that he knew he knew already was near and dear to my heart. On his blog posting, uh, where it's titled "JavaScript Must Die," he says that he said my thesis is that the security situation with JavaScript is so poor that the only solution is to kill it. End users have very little in the way of protection against malicious JavaScript. Major websites suffer from cross-site scripting and cross-site request forgery flaws, both of which we've covered in this podcast in the past. The language itself allows appalling security holes. And as data moves to the cloud, the 14-year-old JavaScript security sandbox becomes more and more irrelevant. So... 
you know, I've spoken over and over and over about just the, you know, the idea, the concept that a, a user browsing the internet can go to a server and that server can give their browser code, any code of any kind. I don't care about the details. The idea that you could go to a site you've never been before and, and something remotely who you don't know that you trust can install code on the fly, which your machine will run in any fashion, creeps me out. I mean, from a security standpoint, there's just nothing good about that. What I love about what John has done is he's, he understands and knows JavaScript inside and out and can, can put meat on this, this fundamental concern I have. I mean, the idea that that's, that's basically a bad idea and John can, can fill in the details. Okay. What an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps I should tell you just a little bit about, um, this talk that I gave and the conference it was at, because it sets the scene a little bit for what I was talking about, which is that this was given at the Virus Bulletin Conference in Geneva uh, in September. And Virus Bulletin is typically about viruses, malware, worms, all the sorts of things that has come out of the virus industry. It is a very hardcore conference. There is a commercial track in the conference where you get some sort of commercial discussions, but it's really about technology. And um, I had wanted to talk, I've talked to that conference quite a lot of times, um, and I wanted to talk about something a bit different this year, if they would let me, which was JavaScript security, because I thought that what was needed was a bit of a wake-up for people, and this was a you know, welcoming forum where that we could talk about it. And so in the presentation, I pushed as hard as I could and, you know, claiming that JavaScript had to be completely destroyed. And in fact, I even, right at the end of the presentation, quoted from, um, I think it's Aliens, uh, where she says we should take to the air and nuke the whole thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> to try and sort of get the point over that uh, it, is a, it is a very serious situation. And what I did in the presentation was I went through... Um, some very serious examples of problems with JavaScript. Now, that's something one, you don't have to do here because that's pretty much what this show is all about. Yeah, and of course, as a listener, I'm well aware that... <laughs> that's um, about all we talk about. <laughs> you just have to say JavaScript to Steve and he gets a sort of scared look on his face and stuff. <laughs> but, um, Understandably, so me too now, I have to say. <laughs> well, you know, and... To, to get things off to sort of a good start, the way in which I deal with it, just so everyone knows, I use NoScript yes, in Firefox. Right, as does Steve. So I, so I whitelist the sites that I really trust. Um, and then when I come to something I don't trust, obviously it's off. Right. And then if I need it, I'll do the temporarily turn it on just so I can take a look around at you know, what's needed on that particular just, site. Just to provide complete balance, I, sh I should say I don't do that. I use JavaScript on every platform all the time. I just boldly go where no elephant has gone before. And you probably so, are, think I'm crazy. So, no, I don't so, think you're crazy. Oh. So, so, so give us a sense, John. Um, there are a number of things that, that you, you touched on. One was I love this, this notion that you picked up on that the security model, which is now 14 years old, as is JavaScript, is no longer really protecting what we care about. Right. So if you go back in history, JavaScript security, the sort of 
defining areas of JavaScript security date to 1995 with early Netscape versions. And at that time, there were two big concerns. There was a worry that a malicious website might attack your computer. You know, the big worry was, okay, you, there's this JavaScript thing running in your browser and somehow it's going to get access to your documents folder and steal the letter you wrote to the bank or something like that. That was one big concern. That's why JavaScript doesn't have an easy way of getting at files um, on the disk. And in fact, that's why when we do uploads of files, we have to go on this browse thing and select the file and actually get it because JavaScript specifically prevents uh, the code from actually going and looking at files on the hard disk. So it was that sort of protect the computer side of things. And then the other key thing was stop a malicious website interacting with another one. So you can't be on your bank's website and then some other website suddenly is able to play with the bank's website and do a transfer or something. That one's still very, very important. That's a very important part. That's the cross-domain security, which we, we can talk about. But the first one about stop a malicious website from attacking your computer, I think, is less and less relevant. And the reason for that is, essentially, we're moving a lot of our stuff out into the cloud. Just look at, you know, Google Mail, Google Docs. In my company, in my day job, we use Google Apps for everything. So we've got the calendar, the mail, the documents. It's all up in the cloud. So that notion of attacking the PC is becoming a little bit irrelevant. You know, I haven't, you know on my work computer, I've got barely anything that's actually on it. You could steal it from me and... You know, you're welcome to it. Don't actually do that, but what I mean is, you know, it's not full of those documents. So that part of the JavaScript sandbox is important because you don't want random code attacking your machine, but it's not as important as the cross-domain attacks that can exist. Well, I know that um, in, in in your slide presentation, you also talk about the fact that that JavaScript is inherently a global language, and you give an example of the TechCrunch website, which loads um, eighteen di- like like the the, the the it looked like the homepage eighteen yeah. different third party JavaScripts from, for example, mm-hmm. MediaPlex.com, ScorecardResearch.com, QuantServe.com, IXNP.com, DoubleClick.net, GoogleSyndication.com, CrunchBoard.com, Snap.com, TweetMeme.com, and Google Analytics. So. So there is script coming from all of those different domains onto the same page. What's the consequence of that? Okay, so first of all, I, I chose TechCrunch just because they load a lot of JavaScript, but they're by no means an outlier. There's plenty of other websites that load lots of different sorts of JavaScripts. And I actually have stats on that, which I'm going to blog about in the next few days because I've got a spider that's been looking at this. Um, There's an important thing to distinguish when we talk about this, when I talk about the consequence, which is, uh, yes, JavaScript has very many global, global variables, global functions, global objects, which I can talk about separately. But specifically in the instance of TechCrunch, what's dangerous is something that's slightly outside of the language itself, but the way in which browsers use the language. So that is that when... Uh, a web page like TechCrunch is loaded and it contains a whole load of these script tags. And the script tags have a thing with the source attribute. And the source attribute says, go get this piece of JavaScript from over there. So it could be from DoubleClick, it could be from Google Analytics, it could be from all over the place. What happens then is that the browser puts them all together, if you like, in the web page you're running. So in that TechCrunch website, web page. And there's, they're able to interact with each other as if 
they are they all came from the same place. So there's no sense that they are in any way separated. So they can all talk to each other, they can all call each other's functions, they can all look at each other's variables. So they have this equal access. And what I liken this to is the way in which on Windows you run as administrator all the time. So it's a bit like the administrator thing. You know, you're on the TechCrunch website, everybody gets to do everything to everybody else. And that means that if you were able to compromise one of those JavaScripts, any one of them, maybe by breaking into the website that hosts it, by changing a DNS setting, any way in which you could compromise it, then you get access to everything else. So just to give an idea, Google Analytics is present on around 40% of the top websites by traffic. Imagine if you could insert into Google Analytics JavaScript. You'd instantly be running your code on 40% of those websites when people went to get it. Because there's no way of protecting it. There's no way of knowing that it's genuine. Um, and there's no way of pre- that JavaScript is protected from the other bits of code in the page or the page itself. It gets to do whatever it wants. So what scares me is... I mean, I went ahead and said, we've got to kill JavaScript. But what scares me actually more than that is the way in which the browser uses JavaScript, which says there's no containment between these things, and there's no way of proving that the JavaScript is correct. For example, um, we've seen, and I think, Steve, you've talked about this, these DNS attacks where mm-hmm. you're able to modify DNS. Um, imagine if you did that to an, an ISP where you just decided to change the entry of Google Analytics. Suddenly you'd be able to attack an enormous number of websites that people were loading through that ISP. And there's no way that you can actually verify that that's happened. Right. And the big problem is I thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe if we loaded those scripts over HTTPS, we'd get um, an invalid certificate and the browser would warn us and say, wait a minute. This has been modified. Well, it turns out, I did tests on this, that the most popular browser out there, IE, um, gives you a warning of the classic sort of, you know, there's something funny here, do you want me to carry on? Okay. Um, and then goes ahead, if you hit okay, goes ahead and runs uh, that particular piece of JavaScript. And of course, we know that most users are educated to hit okay. Hmm, right. So... Um, I, that actually doing this HTTPS protection doesn't help you unless you're running uh, Firefox or Safari. And what happens in that case is if the certificate fails because you're loading the JavaScript through HTTPS and the certificate's bad, it just simply doesn't load it. Silently throws it away. So, um, you know, once again, Firefox and in this case, um, uh, Safari do the right thing. They protect you. So if you're going to do anything to sort of save this, you could do um, HTTPS to protect it. But the big problem when you go back to this global thing is that the browser shoves all of the script tags essentially at the same, what I call the administrator level in the browser. And that, that's what causes your major problem. And that's what I find the most scary thing. Well, there and it's are also, issues. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, as I understand, it's also possible for a JavaScript to redefine the, the language intrinsics, to like redefine fundamental intrinsic functions in the language. Yeah, so that's a rather, there's a really great example of this, uh, which happened with Twitter, which is that the, um, there, was a, there was a way of getting a list of, I believe it was the people you were following um, through using a thing called JSON. Now, JSON 
JavaScript object notation is um, essentially it's an object which is written in JavaScript. And so it could be an array or it could be an associative array, um, but written in JavaScript. And what happens is the browser goes and downloads it normally so that some other piece of JavaScript can use it to display something on the screen, like the list of people I'm following. Um, If you're logged in to, uh, say, Twitter um, or any other site, then, of course, you have this problem, which is that the cookies can be sent by anybody. So if anybody says, request something, it looks like you're logged in. And so you have that problem which happens with, um, you know, cross-site request forgery where you're logged into your bank and, you know, it tries to do a transfer even though you don't see that happening. Well, so the really nasty example with this Twitter thing was that what it was doing was there was this JSON object. Now, the JSON object isn't JavaScript code itself that you could actually look at. Um, So nobody should have been able to get it if they were doing one of these cross-domain things. But when it got loaded by a script tag, because it was actually JavaScript, it got loaded into the same, if you like, context as any other JavaScript that was loaded. Now, it had no name, so you couldn't, in the language, go and poke at it and say, give me the list. So it looked like it was safe to do this. But it turns out that in JavaScript, because of its incredible flexibility they built in, it's possible to actually redefine the object constructor. Now, Hmm. if we go to uh, the way in which objects work, when when you have in an object-oriented system, you have something which says, I'm making a new object. And at that point, it sets up memory and things like that. Well, it turns out that JavaScript has this special thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a special JavaScript thing called a prototype. And um, you can go into this prototype thing and actually redefine things which to many people they would think are inherently not changeable. And one of the things you could redefine was um, this what we call the setter, which is the thing that actually sets the values that are going to go into this object. And what it was possible to do, if you redefine the setter for the global object, then when this Twitter status thing got loaded, even though it had no name and was essentially anonymous, it had to get constructed and set. And in that moment, you could grab its contents. And so that's an example of something, that's an example of something in the language is kind of scary. And so again... yeah. So, so, so if this was actually done and exploited, which I guess is what what you're saying happened, yeah. it's clear yeah. that it's clear that this is not a fault of the language. It's a it's the fact that the language is very powerful, but it also yeah. means that somebody somewhere who really understood this stuff went out of their way to create this exploit. I mean, wrote code that would yep. leverage this functionality of JavaScript in a way that that ended up being malicious and allowed all this information to be stolen from people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this um, this was done by some security researchers, and I'd have to find the, the exact reference to it, but it's pretty easy to find, because I know that um, Bruce Schneier talked about it. It's called JSON hijacking, and JSON is spelled J-S-O-N. Right. And um, it's, it, it's an example of something very, very powerful in the language, which is rather scary. 
uh, because it lets you get at things that are very, you know, it's almost like you're dropping down into an assembly language level and fiddling with stuff on the processor. This is up to such a high, you know, deep level in the language that it's, it's scary. It also allows you to do amazing things, which has made JavaScript very, very powerful. But I would emphasize one thing. that You could leave this in the language if you fix the problem of all the scripts in a page having exactly access to each other. Because if you separated them into little, um, you know, silos, then the script that was actually redefining the object constructor could use that for legitimate purposes, and it wouldn't ever be able to touch this other script that was coming from Twitter. So, you know, I in the presentation I said, well, you've got to destroy all of JavaScript. The, the, the biggest issue for me is this issue of all the scripts being able to run um, at the same level of priority. And actually, uh, that's number one. And then number two is... There's no way of proving that a script hasn't been modified. So that's another worrying let thing. Me, let me ask you about that first point. Could a browser with an attention to uh, security like, say, Chrome, uh, do that kind of siloization of the JavaScript modules? Yeah, actually, there are, there are a couple of proposals around. Mozilla has this thing called the Content Security Proposal, uh, CSP, um, which proposes a way in which... Um, Basically, we restrict the way in which JavaScript is used in the browser. Um, uh, Douglas Crockford, who's one of the real experts on JavaScript, I'm definitely not at his level, has proposed a system of sort of silos for the different scripts. Would you Um, call them separate namespaces? Well, I think the idea is they are sort of separate namespaces, although, you know, in JavaScript, because things are so sort of global, it's a bit dangerous to talk about namespaces. Um, But the idea would be that scripts could get a sort of tag associated with them that says, you know, we're the same. We come from the same site. We can work together. And then, a bra- you know, someone building a website, if they didn't do that, then they would be like, oh, well, you're siloed off there. You go do your thing, interact with the, the web page, and uh, that's fine. Because you, you want to be able to do this stuff for things like Google Analytics. People want to be able to do that, you know, bring in external scripts and run them. But the danger is they can interact with each other. So, you know, there are proposals. I made a different proposal, which is around signing scripts, and we can talk about that that a little bit further on, which is to do with cross-site scripting, which is another another big area. But this this idea that all the scripts are running in the same context is is scary, and, and I think does need to get addressed. And I think there are some thinking, there is thinking around addressing it. And, and do scripts not stomp on each other then by mistake? Like, I yeah, mean, they can they do. Be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they can do because you could, for example, redefine a function. You know, you give some function name. So often when you look at uh, JavaScript that's actually out there, they'll use really weird names, you know, to start things with underscore, underscore, XXXXX, you know, just because they don't want to stamp on each other. <laughs> the other right. thing is there, there is a way in JavaScript to uh, completely contain um, your, your functions, your variables, which is to use a closure Closure is a special sort of function, basically sort of anonymous sort of function, where um, it turns out that you can define um, variables to be local in JavaScript if you specifically do define them that way. And if you wrap it all up in a in a in the global function, um, you know, it's this this anonymous closure thing, then nobody else can actually get at it. So I think it's JavaScript very very powerful. It has all these sort of facilities. Um, you just have to be pretty good at programming it to be really safe. And, and uh, is there, there any is, is is there any evidence at this point that that this this single context environment is currently being used by some scripts to talk across to other scripts so that that creating 
some separation would then break sites that had become dependent upon it? Yeah, it probably would. There, there are some, there are some examples in the web analytics world of, um, uh, particularly when you get in a situation where you upgrade to a new version where they make use of the fact that they can read what the old version was up to and grab data out of it. Mm-hmm. So you know, you've got the old tag and the new tag, and the new tag can say, oh, by the way, I can go grab that from this tag over there because it knows that it can get access to it. So yeah, there is, a, there is an upgrade issue for that. Um, and uh, it's certainly the case that inline scripts, i.e. ones that haven't been sourced from somewhere else, um, if you go and look at you know, any large website, they are expecting to, to be in the same context. So you've got to, you know, You've got, to be, you've got to be careful about um, how you do this. But I think it is, from a security perspective, something you need to be worried about. Because it is, that combination is scary. What, what's your sense of how worried people are? I mean, are we the only people worrying about it? Or are, like, important people worrying about it? I think, you, you guys know, are you important now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no self important. People who could actually do something. Ah, that's different. Yeah. Yeah, people actually do say, well, there is this Mozilla CSP thing, which I think is very important. Uh, Douglas Crockford, of course, is very involved with ECMAScript, has been making a lot of noise about this issue, and he has some good presentations about it. Um, and there are a couple of um, moves to try and make JavaScript safe. Uh, people may remember quite recently there was a, a situation with the New York Times where a malicious ad was was being was inserted in the New York Times. This is exactly an example of, you know, here's a piece of JavaScript. It could do what the hell it wanted. Uh, there is a thing called AdSafe. Um, and AdSafe is a way of um, statically examining a piece of JavaScript, which you're going to use in an ad, typically, and enforcing certain security so that it can't do lots of malicious things. And in fact, what it does is it uses this thing I talked about where you encapsulate the entire thing so it can't get out around. And it is only allowed access to a thing called the AdSafe object, which lets it as a, works as a proxy for some of the more dangerous activities. Um, so that, that is a very good thing because it allows you to take an ad and test it. Uh, and there's another thing called um, Kaja or Kaha, C-A-J-A, which is again a safe subscript, to a subset of JavaScript. Um, so those, this is definitely being thought about, but I think at the current state of things, um, it's a bit scary that there are all these different issues going on. Um, you know, we've seen all these cross-site scripting and many other things I talked about in my presentation, which are rather terrifying. Um, what what scripting does an ad need to run? I don't want ads running scripts. <laughs> no, I realize you don't. You probably just want there to be... Uh, you I mean, know, it's, it's enough to put up with the ad static. itself. I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I actually would feel happier if we got JavaScript under control and dealt with some of these issues and that they were used for ads rather than Flash. Yeah. Because at least the JavaScript implementations are, for the most part, you know, open. Right. And we know what the hell's going on inside them. A lot of times the um, JavaScript, it's, a, it's the worst of both worlds because JavaScript is used to enable Flash. <laughs> to invoke the Flash, right. right. And we use that on our, on our website. We have a Flash player and the JavaScript checks to see if you have that capability and tries to do something intelligent if you don't. Well, what is it in, in my in, in, <laughs> in, in, in my case, I was briefly using Google Analytics until I looked closely at what it was doing, and I realized that that every time 
one of GRC's pages was being presented to anyone who visited GRC, the code which I had been asked by Google to tack on to the end of my page was going out and fetching a block of code on the fly that I hadn't that I had no chance to look at or right. understand. But it was it was so basically my my server was causing anything Google wanted to append to all of my pages to to be included. And I just I thought, well, I just can't have this. I mean, I, that's ridiculous. Well, and but, if you look at that TechCrunch example I gave, I mean, there's yes. there's tens of them, and TechCrunch is is basically in a trust situation. They say, um, well, we trust this code isn't doing anything malicious, and it probably isn't. And we also trust that nothing's ever going to go wrong with it. Um, and you've just got no way of verifying it. And, there and was the actually, pro- funnily enough, a proposal to do signing of JavaScript. This was back in Netscape uh, 3, maybe. I mean, a long time ago. You can still find information about it. And it's just gone nowhere. And I'd be much happier if they were signed so that we'd know when things changed. Yeah, the, the you know, what, what, one of the things that, that all security experts know is... As bad as external security problems are, the great majority of actual exploitation or, or mistakes or you know, um, either by mistake or deliberate occur internally. So all it would take would be somebody with some malicious intent at any one of these sources, for example, in the, in the TechCrunch um, example, not to pick on them specifically, because as you said, many yeah. sites are pulling many scripts from many lo- locations. But it I mean it, it creates this this multiplication of 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 potential for problem. It would just take one insider job um, exploiter to change the script in some subtle way that would have a a huge effect on the internet. Not just one site, but every site that pulled script from them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, so that 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 is that is a real a real worry. Yes, definitely. That you know, and and it, I think in a way it can be quite easily dealt with by siloing. So if something bad happens, is you know, is contained at least that would right. that would make an enormous difference. I think if we could then sign scripts, um, then, then that would make a big difference because then you you know you'd enter into some agreement and say, hey, you know, these guys signed it, and so that gives you another level of. You know, assurance that it's the right thing, the thing you were actually asking for. And, and are you uh, are but, you suggesting that it be digitally signed so that it would have a certificate that would be checked before it was run, or 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 that it then it would be agreed to a certain script, and then they they would not be able to change it without going through some sort of authentication process or authorization process. Well, I suspect that last one is a bit too complicated. I mean, right. I think if you got to the point of just saying, look. Google Analytics always comes over HTTPS. It's signed by Google, mm. um, and you know we've, we've signed this piece of JavaScript. That that would give you quite a lot of information, and it would save you from a lot of you know potential problems to be able to do that. Yep. And, and, and the and other thing that, I've been go ahead. No, the other thing I've been proposing is that the other problem is that um, cross-site scripting is a problem because. If you can, so cross-site scripting, which is a really weird name, basically it's the problem of somebody manages to inject JavaScript into a web page via, say, you know, in a chat room for some reason. There was an interesting example on Reddit not very long ago where someone manipulated the markdown 
um, you know, the, the markdown format they use for marking things up to actually inject a piece of JavaScript into the page. That gets got stored in their database. Anybody who read the comments on that particular story, that JavaScript executed in their browser. Yep. If you think back to the fact that all the JavaScript is executing with the same level of priority, that piece of JavaScript executing in there now got access to all the other JavaScript and the entire page. Now, you can actually fix that problem. This is partly what Mozilla's CSP is trying to do. Um, they do it in a slightly different way, but one way to do it would be to sign the script tags you put into a page. So the page author would say, I put this in, and here's the signature. You can check. Now, I mean, it wouldn't matter if someone managed to insert a piece of JavaScript because it wouldn't have the signature. Right. And you would, that would end cross-site scripting if you did it. Um, so, they, again... This is, that's not inherently bad in JavaScript. It could be a different language, right? It could be VB script. But the, the issue is you don't know where it came from and it gets nevertheless sort of administrator, if you like, within the context of the page access. Right. So it, so it really, in the case of cross, cross-site scripting, it really is a, a strange fluke of sort of the Web 3.0 approach where... Users are submitting content that user that malicious users can submit script content, which will be displayed and run by anyone who then who then views that content. Yeah, and the thing is, there's loads of um, you know examples of these cross-site scripting things, and the the inherent problem is that what happens is uh, you've got these layers of software. In a, you know, a common website. So suppose that you know, you're using JavaScript and HTML in the browser. It gets submitted back over HTTP. It goes into a Ruby on Rails app, which gets stuffed into a MySQL database. <laughs> uh, there's loads of potential for weird stuff to happen to that stuff you entered. Uh, along that route, because you've got all these different languages and escaping, well, in, you know, MySQL is like this, and Ruby is like that, and etc. And they've been you know, classic examples of this. The Reddit one was interesting because it was a bug in their Markdown implementation. There was a Ruby on Rails one to do with um, uh, Unicode decoding, where they had this thing which m- tried to deal with Unicode and they'd handwritten it themselves, and it turned out there were some bugs in it. It was possible to create essentially bad Unicode that got decoded into ASCII with a script tag in it. Uh. So that, you know, and there's another great example, which is uh, to do with UTF-7, you know, Unicode type thing, which is if you, your, your website wasn't specifying that it was in, you know, UTF-8, UTF-16 or whatever, um, you could use UTF-7 characters and then stick in a meta tag saying, by the way, this is UTF-7, which would then promptly get decoded by the browser into a script tag and off you go. So there's loads of potential. I think it's Douglas Crockford who calls this the Tadunkan problem. You know that thing where they put a chicken inside a yeah. duck inside a turkey? Yeah. You've got this layers and layers of different stuff. <coughs> so, sorry, I'm getting too excited now. I'm going to have to start coughing. <laughs> no, stop talking about Turduckans. <laughs> well, yeah. um, just in terms of traditional security, how, how secure has JavaScript's actual sandbox turned out to be in practice? Actually, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's pretty good. There have been lots of bugs, but, you know, hey, what a surprise. Um, sure. It's certainly no Windows, let's put it that way. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there are, there are bugs, and you do see examples, if you look in the SANS database and things like that, of, you know, 
such and such a bug in the sandbox where you know we could get through and do cross cross domain things or cross security domain things in IE. But um, yeah, there are bugs. What, what a surprise! There was a nasty one uh, in Google Chrome, which the Mozilla guys found. And funnily enough, um, by actually inspecting their code, that was uh, you know just a few weeks ago. Right. But to be honest with you, the sandbox. Uh, has been has been pretty good. The, the bigger problem is not the sandbox because, as I say, you know, it's not breaking out the sandbox is a problem. There's you can do plenty of damage within within the sandbox, right? And and so and so problems there are resulting or, or or are the result of bugs in JavaScript's implementation of the sandbox. But everything else we've been talking about are are sort of are fundamental to. What happens when you have scripting power in a browser in this very complex environment where users can provide code, code is being pulled from multiple domains into a single page, code from all these multiple domains is able to see each other and interact with each other. And and again, all of this is hugely complex and we know that complexity is the enemy of security. So bad guys are able to look at all this and just rub their hands together and think, wow, look at all the, you know, this opportunity we have for, for exploiting the, all of this complexity fundamentally enabled by the fact that we've got a scripting engine running in the user's machine that'll do what we tell it to. Yeah, and by the way, I've got nothing against us having a scripting engine in the in the machine. I think that's actually very important part of where we're going uh, with you know mobile code being able to be downloaded. And you know, I'm very happy to use things like Gmail. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. The, uh, use Google Docs in your company. You can't do it without scripting. <clears throat> no, I and it's fantastic. Yeah. And I think the issue is we need to look at the way in which JavaScript is being used in browsers today and deal with some of these these problems. Because, you know, there are lots of nasty examples of, you know, cross-site scripting problems. Um, you know, stealing someone's Twitter friends was probably, you know, uh, the timeline is not that serious. But you can imagine these things do get more and more serious as the systems get more and more complex. And so fixing is important. So that was sort of the reason for my presentation was to say, wake up, everybody. This is not you know, a fun situation. Let's not just let it run and run like this. I'd like to uh, take a break uh, and, and uh, do an ad for <laughs> you lie down. Yeah, I'm exhausted. <laughs> no, but I would like to leave people with a couple of things, uh, a kind of a call to action. First of all, uh, I mean, we've kind of touched on it, but I just want to make, make it very clear before, before we go, not leave people with this hanging, you know, free form anxiety, but uh, what, what they should do and can do and what you think the industry uh, should do. Um, I think we've talked about this, but I'd just like to get it in, in kind of one, if you don't mind, one kind of consolidated form. But before you do that, okay, if I may, I'd like to talk about Audible.com because uh, we got to pay the bills here and Audible does it so beautifully. In fact, uh, boy, I, I am so grateful that I have an Audible account. I use Audible all the time. Uh, when I get in the car, I get my new car now, and it automatically picks up the book where I left off. It's almost like I, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get into my car because I want to pick up where I left off. And when I get out of the car, it stops. It waits patiently for me. Audible is a great way to, to get more reading done than um, you know you would have normally have time for. There's so many times, whether I'm in the car, at the gym, working out, uh, or cleaning the house, uh, walking the dog, that I just don't get to read. 
That's where Audible really comes in handy. 60,000 titles, uh, kind of an endless supply of information, entertainment, um, in all categories, fiction, nonfiction, history, uh, science fiction, a huge science fiction selection, and a lot of humor. I just want to mention our friend John Hodgman's latest book, More Information Than You Require, is now available on audible.com, just came out a few days ago. His previous book was just fantastic. John's been, of course, on uh, Twit before, and I'm really glad to say that uh, his newest is out, not just narrated by John himself. Of course, John is PC on the I'm a Mac ads and well-known for his appearances on The Daily Show, but also buddies Dick Cavett, Jonathan Colton, uh, Ricky Gervais, Ira Glass, Rachel Maddow even appears on this. More information than you require is yours free right now if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Actually, you could pick, you get a credit towards any of the books in the, in the entire Audible library. And most books are a single credit. Some of the longer ones are more credits. This one is fantastic. Highly recommended. In fact, even if you've read this, you, it's really better to listen to John do it. Uh, there's added material that's not on the, in, the, in the print book. Audible.com, I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Give it a try today. We know you're going to love it. It's the best way to get more reading done. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. Steve, I don't want to preempt if you have some other questions before we get to, uh, to John's no, recommendations. I think, I think this is perfect. I'd love, I mean, I know my solution. <laughs> well, it sounds like John uses the same solution. You both, you both prefer uh, to use uh, NoScript. Is that right? Right, right. John, how do you use NoScript? You said you turn it, you, t- you turn on full protection and then allow sites. Yeah, yeah. It's funny actually because I didn't use it for a long time, and I I used to listen to Steve talking about JavaScript security and go, "What a nutcase he is!" <laughs> of course, there's nothing wrong. With, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. <laughs> a crazy idiot going on about wrong. how you shouldn't run JavaScript in your browser. And then um, I started. I'd done a few things with JavaScript, and I started working with some really high-end JavaScript developers, and we started looking at some things, and I just got more and more and more appalled. So, um, yes, I use NoScript, and I basically have it, you know, it's like those old application firewalls. I have it yelling at me all the time, and I find it infuriating, um, but I like <laughs> That's it. That's why I don't use you know. it. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I mean, no, so, you need of it, course, though, the, sites, like... the sites I'm using all the time uh, are whitelisted, you know, right. they allow it to do whatever they want. So I just go ahead and decide to trust them. Um, and, you know, for other sites, I have it essentially switched off, you know, so that basically, you know, you cannot get any JavaScript running unless I specifically say so, and then, you know, I'll go in and do it when I need to. What about on cell phones? I mean, a lot of, a lot of cell phones use JavaScript. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have an iPhone, and, um, you know, to be honest with you, I use it to access not very many different sites. So, stay off the web. No, I use it to stay on the web, of course, particularly for email and, and Twitter, but um, you know, I don't find myself browsing around a lot on my, yeah. my iPhone. For that reason. Well, the, the idea that in the long term, JavaScript is with us, I think no one contests. Yes. Um, we, we, we agree that a, that a, that a the scriptable browser is vastly more useful than a, a dead browser that just lays there and can only display static pages that come from servers. I mean, that was, you know, the web 0.5 uh, version of the world and not something we're ever going to go back to. The idea that 
that there are, as John has presented, there are definitive ways to fix some of the aspects of JavaScript. I mean, I'm still uncomfortable by the idea that anything I, you know, random browsing is going to be running code on my machine. That just isn't cool with me. But the idea that that these more appalling security holes, I mean, the things that are in there really by design are being looked at and and can be tightened up, I think is is tremendous good news. And and I, I will tell everybody that I mean using no script is a burden. You you go to a site and something doesn't seem right. It's not quite working. And so then it's like, okay, let's, you know, see if turning scripting on will make the form work correctly. And it always does. Yeah. I don't I don't have no script set to tell me when it's blocking something. That's really obnoxious because scripting is everywhere now. So all I do is if I see that a site is is doesn't seem to be functioning right, I look down at the bottom and there there'll be a, like a little red slash through the S saying I'm blocking stuff for you. And it's like okay, fine. And so m- normally I temporarily allow scripting. You're able to do it just like yeah. for the session or to permanently whitelist, which is very nice. That way I don't have my, my whitelist growing forever because most sites that I'm randomly going to, I'm not coming back to. So yeah. I, I find that it really works for me. And uh, it, I think it's for, for today, it's the right balance between, you, you know, we have to have some scripting for sites that need it, yet you don't really just have to be running around um, – completely naked on the net all the time and allowing anyone to poke at your browser. The problem is with NoScript is that, you know, you have to be a pretty high-end user right. to be able to use it. And that's why, you know, in my presentation, you, you mentioned this at the beginning, Steve, which is I said, you know, there's no viable way for my mother to control right. this. And um, that's why this is something that's got to be fixed technically to, you know, protect people from what's happening. It, it's It's good for people like us, but... Uh, it's not it's not a solution for the general general web user at all. Right. Uh, it drives me insane, um, <laughs> and you know. Well, that's why I don't there's use one, it. But now I'm terrified. There's one well, thing I didn't talk about, which is kind of interesting. Which is just to leave you with this thought, which is that there's no way for a website to de- tell the difference between a click made in JavaScript oh, and a click I meant to bring that human. up. Yes, yes, yes. I meant to bring that up. Yeah, talk about that, John. This is that uh, click, so, click fraud thing, right? Well, we actually talked about it already earlier in yeah. this episode. The idea that, that, that well, go ahead, that, that, that JavaScript clicks and user clicks are seen as the same thing. Right. Yeah, there's just no way because I mean, what happens is you got this system in of, in the browser of events, which are things like you know you you move the mouse over something, and therefore you know obviously it changes color or whatever JavaScript is used for, uh, or you click on something, and uh, because of the the way in which the web is put together with these you know these essentially different layers which are essentially independent from each other. What happens in JavaScript is you can fire an event. You can say, cause this click to happen, which turns out to be an immensely useful thing to do because you might want to, within your JavaScript, you know, click on something as if the user had done it. Um, you, know, you, you might have two buttons and you want to actually click the other one or some other thing that has to happen. But actually, inside, when I guess going back to the website, there's definitely no way to tell whether a machine did that or a human did it. 
So you get this problem of you, you can't tell whether a person actually initiated that action or not. Um, and so that's another one of those things where you think about it and say, well, it'd be really good if you could actually tell if that was actually the mouse was moved and someone actually clicked on it. Or if a piece of code said, hey, click it. Well, and yes, and, and for all kinds of, I mean, you know, we talk about authentication a lot. And so you'd, you'd, it's really important to be able to, to, for like for a server remotely, to be able to know for sure that when it challenged the user, the user themselves physically, you know, moved the cursor over a button and clicked on it rather than the page happened to load some script from somewhere that did that on the user's behalf, even, I mean, for something really important that, that, you know, where you really want to assure you actually have user focus and awareness and interaction. And, and with the model as it is now, you don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, one of those things in the, you know, you can argue whether that's in the language or in the implementation of the language in the browser, but is, a worrying thing if you're trying to understand, you know, what did a machine do and what did a person do? Well, I hope that uh, people are paying attention to this and I hope that uh, something gets done about it. We need it. It's a the very powerful people. language. The important, we hope people. We, the important people are paying well, attention. Well, you know, all it takes is for <laughs> Google, for instance, although given the problems you talk about with Google Analytics, maybe there's no hope, but for Google or somebody, <laughs> maybe Google could say, well, we're going to make Chrome enforce this. We're going to silo the data. Well, this well, Google, uh, Google are the people behind the uh, Kaja, or Kaha, depending on how you say that, J, um, project. So there's definitely thinking on Google going, going on there about it. Yeah. And uh, I, I talked about Google Analytics just because of its incredible popularity. There's nothing inherently wrong with Google Analytics. I mean, right. it scares me that it's on so many sites. That's what worries me about it. I don't think Google's up to anything naughty. Well, but um, loading fact, code without any, I mean, kind of, it's inherently risky, but it's doing what everybody does with JavaScript, I guess, so. Yeah. It sure is. And it's just, that's just the biggest worry is the, you know, let's just slap things together and, you know, they're, they're all running as the same priority. And right. that, right. that's a scary situation. Is Kaja as good a solution, you think, as uh, siloing or signing? I no, mean, I, think, I, think it, I think if we had proper silo, you know, we could actually break things up into separate spaces and then. We don't need um, to strip the language the, down then. I think there's some uh, merit in. Working, going down to a subset of the language, which is you know we known to be safe, and sort of building back up again from there right. to try and avoid some of the the scarier parts. Um, I think that's a valid thing to do. But I think that you know just being able to sign things and know they are what you're expected to get is very important. Well, and and you know we're talking about a language which is 14 <laughs> years old. Remember the world 14 years ago when JavaScript was designed. It wasn't facing anything, right. any of the challenges that it's facing today. Well, part of the problem was that JavaScript wasn't, in fact, designed. I mean, it, it's, it was very ad hoc and uh, was implemented in a variety of different ways. Well, and the fact that it's even called JavaScript is a misnomer. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's got nothing to do with Java <laughs> yeah. at all. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I guess uh, Netscape were hoping the sun would buy them, and so they right. called it you know, <laughs> JavaScript. So... Well, John, I'm so glad we could get you back on again. I do want to give a plug for uh, your Geek Atlas because it's a great book from O'Reilly that covers 200, what, 256 of the great geek sites. No, 128. 128. 128, okay. 
Two, two to the yeah, two to the here it is. <laughs> there it is. Look, take a look at it. He's got it. Two to the seventh. Two to the seventh, not two to the eighth. Yeah. All right. So I can get it back in front of the camera. Yeah, there here we go. <laughs> and now here's the here's the big surprise. I just received this today. It, oh, the, guy got the it book upside is upside down. down now. What? It's, it's this been is updated. The German edition. Oh, auf du Einzelhaben. Der yeah, so if you speak Atlas. German, so English or German, depending Excellent. on uh, what you like. Congratulations. So. That's really great. It's a wonderful book. I have it. And uh, I hope maybe someday to retire and, and, and make the trek to all of those sites. Be fun. <laughs> Be really fun. Uh, org is the place to go for, uh, Got it. for for the blog, John Graham Cummings blog. And uh, Steve's uh, snip URL for the article that started this all in the slide stack that started this all is snipurl.com uh, slash javascript security. Did I get that right, Steve? Yep. Well, that's great. Thank you, John. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. It's great spending the time with I've you. I've got to go quickly go to install NoScript on all my machines. <laughs> <laughs> it's many, too late. I already infected them. How many times have I said that before? But this time I want to really do it. You did finally scare me into it. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security.